You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. First Samuel chapter 1. I'm excited to start this book with you, and as we spend this most of the year going through First and Second Samuel together. But let me ask you a question. When you find yourself in times of trouble, who do you go to for help? Well, it might depend on what you're doing, right? If you're trying to fix a broken dishwasher, there's no better place to go than YouTube, right, for a repair video of how to get the fix done. So you don't have to call the repairman. If you're stuck on a a math problem, well, you might go to a calculator, might consult a teacher or a tutor. If you are troubled by your grades in school, maybe you'll go to the library and study. Or if you are stuck on a work project, maybe you go to your supervisor or a boss or a coworker for guidance and instruction on what to do. But there are some matters that a Google fix can't fix. What do you do when the sorts of troubles that you face in your life have no easy solutions and no quick remedies. Where do you go to for help when no one can fix the problem, when no one can resolve the dilemma? What do you do when you find that after all of your efforts, you still are hopeless and helpless? As we start 1st and 2nd Samuel, which must be read as one book in two parts, we begin with the introduction of a nobody family with an ordinary woman plagued by infertility. Let's start reading in 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 2. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. You know, the book begins in the time of the judges. The Lord had brought Israel to the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And even though the people dwelled in the promised land, the land that God had promised, God's blessing was withheld. In the book of Judges, we see this constant cycle of Israel's disobedience to God, the rise of a military threat that threatened the people, and God's deliverance of the people through a judge. Israel was in the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey, but Israel was spiritually barren. God's blessing of fruitfulness was withheld because of their waywardness. But yet, 1 Samuel begins with the introduction of an obscure family narrowing our attention on a barren woman. We are introduced to a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Elkanah. Ephraim was a small rural town of little consequence. Elkanah's father is Jerem. Elkanah's great-grandfather is Elihu. His great-grandfather is Tohu, his great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, Zuf. 
And what's the significance of this family line? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. And that's the point. Elkanah comes from a great line of nobodies. He's an obscure Israelite who had two wives, we're told, Hannah and Peninnah. And we're told one key difference between these two women. Peninnah had children. Hannah did not. Hannah is a proxy for Israel in the opening narrative of 1 Samuel. Her name means grace or blessing. And her barren womb causes us to ask, where is God's blessing for Israel? Where is his grace? Where is the spiritual fruit of his covenant people? You see, Hannah's plight, as we will see, illustrates and reflects Israel's problem. And Hannah's response will be the template, the pattern of Israel's remedy. As the narrative continues, Hannah's infertility is a cause of great personal pain and anguish. Let's keep reading in the narrative in verse 3. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Each year, Elkanah and his family would go up to Shiloh, which was about 15 miles north of their town, for an annual festival of worship and sacrifice. Since Joshua chapter 8, Shiloh was the location of the tabernacle. And at this point had virtually become a permanent structure at this point. And during this time, Eli functioned as the judge of Israel and were introduced to his two sons, the priests, Hophni and Phinehas. These are two wicked and shameful brothers that will reveal the extent of Israel's leadership and spiritual problems in the coming chapters. But at the annual celebration, Elkanah would take the whole family. They would offer the sacrifices to the Lord, and Elkanah would give portions to all of his family. Peninnah and her children obviously would receive the largest quantity of the meat, of the food. He would give, though, to Hannah the double portion of the choicest portions of the meat. You see, Hannah had a husband who loved her even without the blessing of children. Elkanah did not love his wife because of what she could give him, but for who she was as his wife. Hannah had just about everything an Israelite woman could have asked for in these times. She had financial security. Elkanah seems to be fairly well off. She had a husband who greatly loved her and truly had affection for her, but yet she lacked children. And in that culture, the lack of children 
was largely a mark of shame and social alienation. And in this pain, her her husband tried to support her and encourage her and to show her affection. Yet, it was Peninnah. And Peninnah was a mouthy woman who took the annual trip to Shiloh as an opportunity to jab and to provoke Hannah in her pain and her affliction. We can almost imagine what this sort of provoking and prodding must have been like for Hannah to experience year after year. Peninnah gathering the children around. Children, gather around. Wow, there's so many of you children to keep up with. I'm having a hard time keeping up with you all. You're running all over the place. Gather together. Does every child have their food? And suppose one of Peninnah's little girls might go to Peninnah and say, Mommy, why why doesn't Miss Hannah have any children? Doesn't, doesn't, Doesn't Miss Hannah want children? Oh, of of course she does, honey. I'm sure Miss Hannah wants children. Don't you want children, Hannah? Why? Who wouldn't want children? They're such little blessings. Well, why doesn't Miss Hannah have children? Well, it's because God doesn't let Miss Hannah have children. Well, doesn't God, does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, well, I don't know, dear. What, What do you think? And oh, Hannah, by the way, did I tell you that I'm pregnant again? You can imagine that sort of jabbing and jeering and aggression. Year after year, Peninnah kept aggravating Hannah with painful reminders of her infertility. See, the barren Hannah finds herself in really good company. Throughout scriptures, it is the pattern of God to do wonders for his people through barren women. The promised child of Abraham came through a geriatric womb of Sarah. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, another example, right? Rebecca couldn't conceive, struggled for decades with infertility before she had her twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob's wife, Rachel, couldn't conceive for a long time, but eventually had Joseph who would be the one who would deliver God's people through the famine. Samson's mom also couldn't conceive until an angel came to her and announced that she would have a son. John the Baptist, who we read about this morning, would prepare the way for Jesus. And he came from the barren womb of Elizabeth. And so it is the pattern of God to bring the fruit of his promise through barren wombs. So on this particular feast at Shiloh, Hannah came to a breaking point year after year, year after year of discouragement, of hearing her rivals jeering. She broke down crying. She refused to eat. Elkanah, as sweetly as he can, attempts to comfort her. And he says, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why are you you crying? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? And at first glance, Elkanah sounds like a befuddled husband attempting to to comfort a grief-stricken wife. Why do you need children? You've got me. (laughs) But, But I think Elkanah is genuinely trying to comfort his wife, to show affection for her inner anguish, the best way he knows how. But nevertheless, Hannah is feeling alone and helpless in her pain. 
She has a rival who jabs and mocks her, a husband who who means well but is insufficient in his sympathy, doesn't fully understand. Who do you go to for help? What do you do with your anguish? Perhaps your struggle is the same as Hannah's. You've done the natural family planning. You've sought fertility treatment. You've done all those things. And yet month after month, your womb contracts with anguished soul, barren, fruitless, childless. Each month you've shared in Anna's tears, bitter tears as they trickle down your cheek. You've tasted them, not just for months, but for years, longing for a child that the Lord has yet to give. Who do you go to for help? Medicine can diagnose infertility, perhaps even aid infertility, but it cannot resolve infertility. With medical technology, it may be tempting to take matters into your own hands. Let me encourage all of you not to play God and mess with things like IVF technologies that treat human beings like disposable Petri dish lab experiments. As a Christian, you will eventually get to the point where you have done all you can ethically do to conceive. And so then, what do you do? Who do you go to for help? Will you do what Hannah did? You go to the Lord. Let's keep reading in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. The text says Hannah rose. Isn't that interesting? She will not wallow in her grief, but she stands to deal with it, to do something with it. In contrast to Hannah, we have Eli, the priest, who sat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. The two are foiled in the narrative. Hannah is the active one. Eli, the priest, is the passive one. Hannah rises to go and pray And before the presence of the Lord, she wept with tears, praying, asking the Lord to to look on the affliction of your servant and remember. Hannah's prayer is one of faith and confidence in God. She uses the language calling back to the events of Exodus. As the Lord speaks to Moses from the burning bush, I have seen the affliction of my people. Here is an afflicted woman in need of deliverance. And as she prays with hot tears streaming down her face, she vows that if God should give her a son, he would be a lifelong Nazarite. The Nazarite vow required that a person abstain from the fruit of the vine, refrain from the cutting of one's hair, and avoid corpses of all sorts. Typically, the vow was a temporary one But only three men in the Bible were permanent, lifelong Nazarites. Samson, Samuel, 
and John the Baptist, each man born to a barren woman. Hannah's outpouring of her soul in prayer gets the attention from Eli, but not for the reason we might expect. Let's keep reading in verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Eli's rebuke of Hannah foreshadows his lack of competency. Here is a priest who cannot recognize earnest prayer when he sees it. He confuses Hannah's intense prayer for just another drunken woman at the feast. See, at the feast of the Lord, Eli thought it more likely to find a drunken woman in the tabernacle than a prayerful one, a dour indication of the spiritual state of the nation at the time. Strangely, Eli gets riled up over this supposedly intoxicated woman at the temple, but as we'll see in coming chapters, he will use a soft hand in dealing with his own sin's fornication in the tabernacle. There at the temple, Hannah is pouring out her soul to the Lord, and the priest of God rebukes her for it. But once Hannah explains what she's doing, Eli acknowledges a mistake, and he grants a blessing to her. And in the providence of God, Hannah would carry the baby who would become Eli's replacement. After that particular feast, Hannah conceived, we're told, and bore a son, and she named him Samuel, which means either name of God or possibly offspring of God. Hannah went to the Lord in trouble. Do you do the same? When you have nowhere else to turn, who do you go to? Do you turn to the Lord in prayer? You see, we have to remind ourselves that the Lord is sovereign over all of our life circumstances. A Christian recognizes that God is sovereign, but this cannot lead us to a calloused fatalism. We must be content, whatever our circumstances, but God's children are invited by the Lord himself to raise their voices in faith, asking God to act. When we call out to God in prayer, the Lord hears us, and he will often act in response to our prayers. It is the great mystery of God's providential working that he achieves his sovereign will through his people praying. It was God who closed Hannah's womb, and her affliction grew so intense, 
her suffering so severe that she got to the breaking point where she poured out her soul to the Lord in great tears and prayer. Often the Lord brings such affliction as a way to entice us to pray, to humble our pride, and to help us feel even more deeply our dependence upon him. Church, we cannot force God's hand by our prayers. If you pray like Hannah, the Lord may deal with your problem as you request, or he may act in accordance with his knowledge and wisdom. He may open your womb, he may close it. He may reconcile that family dilemma, or he may allow it to linger. He may save your lost friend through your prayers, or he may harden his heart. He might solve the financial problem or teach you contentment in your poverty. The Lord is not obliged to solve our problems as we see fit, but he is a good father who gives good gifts to his children. And when we are troubled, when we are anguished, when we are grief-stricken, that is God's enticement, his wooing for us to go to him. In prayer, we must go to God in such moments. God forbid that our belief in his sovereignty would prevent us from raising our voices in earnest prayer. Whatever your problem, go to the Lord. And keep going to the Lord. Do not cease to pray to God and ask. Ask him over and over and over again. Sometimes we have this tendency to think that that nagging prayers like that are an indication of discontentment. But they are just the opposite, friend. Persistent prayer is the prayer of faith. Hannah's life shows us the way the kingdom of God works. He will bring spiritual fruit to his people, Israel. How will barren Israel in the time of judges and all their evil and defilement, how will God bring spiritual fruit through his barren people? How does God do that in our lives? Well, it starts with a recognition of our total inability, utter dependency upon God shown in hopelessness and helplessness, all that's shown through our prayers, that is the launch pad of God's redemptive work. When we are without strength, when we are without resources, when we are without ideas, that is when the Lord will stretch out his hand to act. If you feel hopeless and helpless, the stage is set for God to work in power in your life if you would but go to him in faith and raise your voice in prayer and call out to him. Hannah's action to go to prayer in her moment of great need is not only the turning point in her life, but it's the turning point in Israel's history. Do not underestimate what God can do with the prayer of brokenhearted faith. Hannah, no doubt, rejoiced in the birth of her son, Samuel. But she was a woman of faith committed to keeping her vow. Let's keep reading in verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, 
Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child, I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. At the time, a weaned baby would have been about two or three years old. And once weaned, Hannah was committed to keeping her vow to the Lord. And she brought her baby boy, Samuel, to Eli. Her husband, Elkanah, seems to be a man of faith. He goes along with his wife and trusts that the Lord will indeed establish his word. Indeed, that phrase, the Lord establishing his word, introduces a key theme throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel, and it foreshadows the importance of Hannah's baby for the nation of Israel. Elkanah and Hannah bring Samuel, along with some expensive offering, a bull and ephah of flour, as much as six gallons of wine. And with those offerings, Hannah presents Samuel proudly to Eli and ultimately to the Lord. And she reminded Eli just who she was several years ago, that she was the woman praying to the Lord. And Hannah now gives that baby over to the Lord. And so it should be with every Christian parent. Every godly mother should follow Hannah's principle of recognizing that it is the Lord who owns our children. Children are gifts from the Lord, that we should work to give back to the Lord. The task of parenting is multifaceted. We want to ensure that we keep our children alive. Sometimes that's hard, but we do it. Sometimes we keep our kids educated and we want to make sure they're loved. We want to make sure they have all their basic needs met. But the ultimate task of the Christian parent is to give them back to the Lord. Thus, we raise them in the word. We share the gospel with them and we train them. We bring them to church with us and we discuss what they learned afterward. We conduct family worship to help catechize and instruct the children in the gospel. And of course, we pray for the salvation of our children's soul. There's a bit of a wordplay happening in Hannah's comments here. Petition and Lent, which occur twice, come from the verbal root of a Hebrew word called sha'al, which means asked for. Sha'al sounds very similar to Samuel's name in Hebrew. And Samuel is the one Hannah asked for. And now Hannah says, he is the boy the Lord asks for in his service. So while Samuel is the one the Lord asked for, we'll find later on in 1 Samuel, Israel will ask for someone. And who will Israel ask for? The next time we see this word show up in 1 Samuel, it's the name of a man, Shaul, or as we say in English, Saul. From the beginning, Samuel and Saul are linked by their names. Hannah's story closes out, though, with a prayer in chapter 2. And it's an important prayer that frames the book of Samuel. 
and it introduces so much of the key themes that we will see over the course of this book and that we'll see dramatized in the narrative to come. Because you might be thinking, as we read 1 Samuel chapter 1, this is a strange place to start about Israel's history out of the judges. What's the big deal about these events? So what? God helped a barren woman conceive. But Hannah's life and God's dealing with her is a model, a template of how God will deal with his people Israel. If Israel should humble themselves and turn to the Lord and call out to him with great desperation, the Lord will exalt them and bring his blessing. Hannah's story is presented as a new sort of exodus, though in a smaller and more domestic setting. Hannah was afflicted just like Israel was afflicted in Egypt. And Hannah sings a song of praise in chapter 2, paralleling the song of Moses after the Egyptian chariots were crushed in the Red Sea. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's, let's read what the word says, starting in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exultant in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but his, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. and He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priests. Here is a prayer from Hannah that in the context of First and Second Samuel functions as more than a prayer, but is in fact a template, the model, if you will, of how God's kingdom works. Hannah rejoices that the Lord's relieved her affliction. She exalts in the Lord because of his intervention. In verse 2, she celebrates the uniqueness of the Lord. Lord, there is none holy like you. And after two verses of introduction, the body of the prayer begins in verse 3, and she begins to lay out the model, the paradigm of God's work of redemption. Before the presence of the Lord, pride and arrogance must cease when compared to the God of knowledge. Like the way John Woodhouse said it, he said human pride and arrogance are a form of pretending. We may think we know what's best, but God's perfect knowledge weighs all his actions. 
But it was Hannah's presupposition, though, her belief of God's perfect knowledge that led her to pray in the first place, asking the Lord to give her a son. But yet it is the pattern of God's kingdom is one of reversal. Hannah comments on this in verse 4 through 5. The strong become weak, and the weak ones become strong. The fool become the hungry ones, and the hungry become full. The barren one has children, and the one with many becomes forlorn. In verse 6, we even see that Hannah has a theology of resurrection. Take that, Sadducees, right? The Lord kills, and he brings to life. But but Hannah's point becomes clearer in verse 8. God subverts our expectations. He reverses things by taking the poor, the needy, the helpless, the desperate, and he raises them. He lifts them. He makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The God of knowledge has the freedom to act this way because he is the God of power. Look at what Hannah says. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. All knowledge, all power. In verse 9, Hannah summarizes this meditation by presenting a distinction between the Lord's faithful ones and the wicked. The faithful ones will be guarded by the Lord. The wicked will be cut off by the Lord. Those who humble themselves, those who go to the Lord, those who depend on him will be exalted and protected. But those who oppose the Lord, she says, will be broken to pieces and will experience the thunderous judgment of divine wrath. And then in verse 10, did you catch it? Hannah prays something a little strange. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of the anointed. You catch what's strange about that? Strangely, Hannah prays for a king when Israel does not currently have a king. She prays for the Lord's anointed or, to put another way, the Lord's Christ. And so Hannah introduces a question that will dominate not only 1st and 2nd Samuel, but all of the scriptures. Who is Yahweh's king? Who is the Lord's anointed? Who is the Christ? And thus far, we can guess that Hannah's son, Samuel, will play an important role in establishing that monarchy. We we even get a clue in the very first verse of the book of Samuel, as we learn from Elkanah's background, that he was an Ephrathite. Ephrathra was a name, another name for Bethlehem. And so we get breadcrumbs, little clues, leading to a little town called Bethlehem. And it is there that Hannah's son, Samuel, would anoint a meager, poor shepherd boy named David to be God's king. And the whole story of Samuel demonstrates, illustrates this prayer in chapter 2. As the Lord reverses David's state and takes him out of the pasture and makes him a king. The Lord would guard and protect his faithful one. And he would indeed exalt the horn of his anointed king. But it would be the better David to come. The Lord Jesus Christ who brings the kingdom of God to fruition. As Jesus operates his kingdom and begins to proclaim its coming in the Gospels, his kingdom is exactly as Hannah describes. It is Jesus who says the last will be first and the first will be last. 
And it is Jesus who comes to help the hopeless and the helpless. Jesus' mother, Mary, prays a song very similar to that of Hannah's and traces similar themes. Because here is another wise woman, like Anna, who recognized the way the Lord works. Mary sings in Luke chapter 1, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Doesn't that sound like Hannah? You may not be a barren woman, but you, like Hannah, need God's help. Like Israel, your life is a spiritual wasteland. Barren. You are a poor sinner, weak and wounded. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are without help. So where will you go for help? What will you do with your sin? Will you try to solve it by your own efforts? How can you remedy your state, the state of your soul, by your own ingenuity? You see, the first step to experiencing God's redemption is to recognize your inability. Desperation is the prelude to God's redemptive grace in our lives. Friend, let me invite you today to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's king. He is the Lord's anointed who blesses the poor in spirit with everlasting life. And if you would call out in faith to Jesus Christ, He will deliver you from the judgment of your sin. Indeed, not only can the Lord raise up the poor from the dust, but by the resurrection of Christ, he can raise up our souls from death. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you grateful that you are our king. And Lord, we are grateful that you are God who hears our prayer who hears our yearnings and our longings. And Lord, that you invite us to come before you, even with great tears, to share our concerns, our burdens, our anguish. Lord, you do not despise a broken heart. And so, Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that you exalt those of lowly estate. Lord, I do pray, Lord, that all of us would be humble and contrite in our sin, in our suffering, in our anguish, And Lord, that you, by your power, would lift us up by Christ the King, that he would raise us up in newness of life as we turn from our sins and put our faith in Christ. And those of us who are spiritually barren, that you might fill us with spiritual life. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.